Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined by Robert Trusinski. Yeah. We'll be talking about Groundhog Day on its 25th anniversary. Yes, great. Nice to hear from you. Robert, I'm glad you've joined me. Please introduce yourself for our audience. Hello, so I'm Robert Trusinski, senior writer at The Federalist. Wrote an article recently on Groundhog Day. So let's talk about this surprising essay you have just written. Okay, that sounds great. Yes, it's been around for 25 years, and there's two interesting things about it. One is that it's one of these movies that didn't get a lot of notice when it came out. It got positive reviews, but not overwhelming reviews, and was just regarded as a light, screwball comedy, and people moved on. And then year after year, it gets more and more attention, is more and more regarded as this beloved classic. At the time, if you would ask anybody, are people still going to be talking about this movie 25 years from now, you would have thought it was ridiculous, but it has become a standard item on the list of all-time classic films. And the other reason for that is that in the guise of a screwball comedy, it ended up having some very profound ideas about life. I think maybe people who are a little younger don't quite realize the extent to which we did not take Bill Murray seriously in 1993 when this movie came out. He had come up through Saturday Night Live, through these very light screwball, almost lowbrow humor, movies like Stripes. And that's how he came up in the 80s. He's done a lot more artistically interesting things later on, even moved beyond comedy where he started out. But at the time, we sort of thought of him as, oh, he's this crazy madcap screwball comedy guy. So we weren't looking for a serious themes out of a Bill Murray comedy at the time, and we ended up getting them. Now... Maybe we should do a brief overview of the plot. Yeah, I think all we need is a brief overview because it's actually kind of gone out into the language as a figure of speech. You've probably heard somebody say, oh, it's like Groundhog Day over there. Metaphor for having to redo the same thing over and over again. And that's the idea of the plot. Bill Murray plays this guy, Phil Connors, a cynical big city TV weatherman who's acerbic. He looks down on everything in life as being beneath him and hokey and stupid, something that fits very much to Bill Murray's style, which is always sarcastic and sardonic. He's sent off to cover Groundhog Day, this ritual where they have the groundhog comes out and they say whether they see a shadow, off in Punxsutawney, Townie, this smaller town. And he goes through, sort of mows through the whole day and hates everything and just wants to go back home as soon as possible. But he can't go back home because he wakes up the next morning and there is no next morning. He's stuck living the same day over and over again in the same place. And there's this great idea they had. Every morning he wakes up at 6 a.m. with his clock radio alarm going off and he gets Sonny and Cher singing, I Got You, Babe, which is a really annoying song and I think they chose it for being an annoying song. So every morning he wakes up to the same annoying reminder that he's in the same place, stuck with the same circumstances and nothing he can do can change that. He can never escape. He has to live the same day over and over again until he gets it right. So after going to various ways of trying to deal with this, what makes it really interesting is he eventually decides to go on a program of self-improvement. He learns how to play piano. He learns French and reads French poetry. He becomes an expert ice sculptor. But more than that is he changes his character. He changes who he is and makes himself into a better person. And so finally he lives one perfect day and declares his love for the one of the other characters. And he wakes up the next morning and it's actually February 3rd. He's finally escaped this dilemma of eternal repetition and is able to move on. And it's because he has become a better person who's actually able to deal with life. Now, when you have this supernatural premise, okay, some guy's doomed to live the same day over and over again, the purpose is to serve as a metaphor for something real about life. It puts Phil into a situation where he cannot change anything about his external circumstances. He keeps trying to change them or do something about them, but he always goes back to square one in the morning. The only thing he can change is himself. 
So it ends up sending a very profound message about how much we can change about our lives, how much more important it is what we can change about our lives if we change who we are rather than depending on the change of external circumstances. Yeah, and it's something that seems way more prophetic now. People feel far more trapped nowadays and unable to affect their circumstances or to make a difference in the world, to get a sense of their own real impact on the world and the world's real impact on them. So it would seem that the film gets close to self-help, but it's a very good comedy. It's neither preachy nor does it lie to the audience about how much misery and suffering is tied up in human existence. There's misery and suicide in this man's attempt to deal with this permanence of his own character, which makes him hate himself. Well, yeah, for our comedy, it actually covers this wide range of emotion. There's some very funny bits. He goes through a stage where he realizes, I'm repeating the same day over and again. I know everything that's going to happen. I can use this to run all sorts of scams and get away with all sorts of things. He knows exactly when a armored car driver's back is going to be turned, and he steals a giant bag of money and goes out as a spree with it. So there's that sort of screwball comedy aspect of it. But then when those diversions aren't enough and he becomes bored with them, he then eventually goes into this deep existential despair and depression and tries to kill himself a number of times. So there's a comedic aspect, but there's also a very dark aspect and low lows that he goes through before he then reaches a spiritual peace. Yep. The story pits these two elements of American character against one another. One of them is Americans want to be mobile. They want to move, to live where they have a future, to live where they can make a living. They're not tied up to this or that place. But on the other hand, Americans want to improve themselves. Yeah. Americans are very ambitious. We're always doing out and doing and trying to do the next new thing and this next new thing over here. And he can't do that. He can't move on from one thing to another. Yeah. Exactly, but instead he's forced to face this other thing that Americans want as much, self-improvement. In certain ways, America is the country of lifelong learning. Yes. As people hit middle age, they'll go on the great courses, they'll look up podcasts on history or literature or what have you. They have a yearning for these things, and I think, like in the movie, they also become aware of their mortality in this strange way, the inescapability of your own character, that you are not enough to make yourself happy or to live a good life, that you need to look for something more and something better. The way I put it is the key to happiness in the very short term and the very long term are really the same. It's about the kind of person you are. To quote from another movie of the era, wherever you go, there you are. <laughs> yeah. Uh, follow all these goals and pursue everything and be constantly striving and busy and out there doing things. But at any given moment, how happy you are depends less on what you're doing and more on who you are. Yes. Because that's the one thing that's constant among all the different things that you do. Exactly. And that's why it helps to have somebody like Bill Murray. As you pointed out, Bill Murray, after Royal Tenenbaums, Wes Anderson's movie, and after especially Sofia Coppola's Lost in Translation, became this existentially important, dour guy. Yeah. Very depressed, who's just full of life's misery. The last stage of boomer development in the American cinema, you could call it. Yeah. But 80s Bill Murray was funny. He loved life. He was Ghostbuster, Stripes, Caddyshack, these sorts of things. Well, the other interesting thing about Bill Murray as a choice for this movie is he also played the lovable jerk in a lot of these movies. Yes. Uh, in Ghostbusters, which is probably the ultimate example. He's not a really a great person. He's acerbic and he's wisecracking and he's not serious about anything. He could be a jerk to the other characters in the film, but he's a charming jerk. 
And I think that's kind of interesting because there was a screenwriter who first came up with the premise. It was an old friend of Harold Ramis who was his co-star in Ghostbusters. They worked on it together and developed it into this story. And one of the people they originally offered the role to was Tom Hanks. Now, Tom Hanks was in the middle of going through a similar transition. He also was somebody we didn't take seriously back in the late 80s, early 90s. He was in these screwball comedies. Regarding Tom Hanks as a serious actor was also something that was going to start happening a little bit after that. Like Saving Private Ryan, I think, was a few years later. Yes. So the idea of taking Tom Hanks very seriously as an actor was still not quite in people's mindset either. Yeah. But it didn't work out for some reason. And he later said to Harold Ramis, I'm glad I didn't do it because Tom Hanks had this image as a nice guy. Yes. And, of course, still does. And so he says, if I were in the role of Phil Connors, people would be expecting me to be a nice guy. So when I'm a jerk early in the movie, they're going to just be waiting for the point at which I transition and go to being a nice guy. Yes. Whereas you put Bill Murray in there and people don't know. <laughs> they don't know where he's going to go because he could go one way or the other. They've had this idea of him as a wisecracking, slightly jerky guy. So they're going to be in more suspense about what happens to him. And I think that's the genius of it is that he takes that and that sort of world-weary sadness Bill Murray has yeah. that I think has been emphasized more recently. That fits very much in the middle part of the film when he has to go through this period of despair how world-weary would you be if you had been living this same day over and over again? There was no surprises and everything. You knew everything was going to happen, and you'd seen it all thousands of times before. Yeah. Of course, also, the comedy allows the audience, because of Bill Murray's character, to enjoy his suffering and his bafflement. He's such a wise guy that you enjoy him getting his comeuppance, and you're nevertheless fairly reassured. Yeah, it's kept within limits, and it's the craftsmanship of the film is really nice. Their ability to hit exactly the right note, and he suffers, yeah. but they don't really go too far in showing the suffering. It's just enough to give you the idea, and then you move on in the plot to the next stage. So it's just very nicely paced and very nicely done. I think Roger Ebert was one of these people, he reviewed it when it first came out, gave it a positive review, but not a really glowing review. And then like 12 years later, he did a series on great films and included and talked about why he didn't realize how good this was at first. And he says, it's because it's so effortless. Yeah. The movie just folds effortlessly as this enjoyable comedy. It's so effortless, you don't notice what it's actually doing and how much it's actually doing. The ironic thing is he and several other people said, you have to watch it over and over again <laughs> to appreciate it. People expect a comedy and they've grown over the years to enjoy it more and more for all the jokes and all the setups and how rare an occasion it is to have all these jokes about repetition and variation and exasperation. The tight confines of this small little town of Punxsutawney turn out to be comedy gold. How much of the inescapable is tied up in our comedy and in our jokes and frustration, it comes across very, very well. But it also means that reviewers or critics will tend to dismiss it, not think about what's happening. Yeah, yeah. I also think that the cynic who undergoes some sort of conversion and has a more positive view of life, that's almost a cliche in the movies. Yeah, of course. Well, all versions of going to a happy end have turned out cliches. But I mean, also specifically that one of the cynic who develops a newfound appreciation for life, a new sincerity about life. And so when you see something that does it in a more original and more subtle and more thoughtful way, I think that makes it stand out as well. Yeah. Groundhog Day hasn't really been imitated. It hasn't really inspired a new form of screwball comedy that has these moral stakes about how do you deal with loneliness. And it should have. 
but presumably it wasn't successful enough for people to take it seriously and as it has become so well beloved it's too late for that to have an effect on movies yeah that's an interesting question i'd want to think about what is another comedy like this <laughs> you know i can't really think of much of anything on that i'd be curious if anybody does come up in the comments or if anybody does come up with a movie that has a similar character to it yeah it's very original very unique yeah there was one recently but i don't remember it well there's a guy who's going through the day before his wedding it may be marlon wayans in one of his zany comedies mm -hmm. i think that's the guy but it was not a big movie and it's the only one that comes to mind it is rare and I think the idea of a time loop, of somebody being stuck in a time loop and having to redo an event multiple times, that has been done a couple times, but I don't yes. think in a movie with the same sort of character to it. No, it's done in action movies, tough thrillers, things of that sort, not in comedy. Yeah, yeah. And the more's the pity. Yeah, yeah. But it's the strange situation of the movie that people have come around to realize its greatness, but it remained unique. It has no imitators. Yeah. And as we know, imitation is a fairly sincere form of flattery. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I always observe that Hollywood likes to make movies in twos. <laughs> I actually specifically think the mechanism is that they see that one of the other studios greenlit a certain kind of movie. Yes. And they decide, well, we got to have one of those here. My favorite was a couple of years after Groundhog Day, in the mid-90s, they had one you know, they called Deep Impact, where Comet was going to strike the Earth. Yes. And so one of the other studios said, oh yeah, we're going to do one about an asteroid. <laughs> yep, that was Armageddon, of course. Now, this is the, the best movie review I never got around to writing. I thought those movies made a fascinating contrast, because it's basically the same plot. <laughs> That's a good point. Some celestial object is coming towards the Earth, and it's going to cause this huge death and destruction, and people are sent out to stop it with mixed results. But Deep Impact was this very touchy-feely, emotional movie. It's basically a chick flick. Whereas Armageddon was the loudest movie I've ever personally been in. It's Bruce Willis. It's a tough guy action film kind of thing. And so I was going to write a review called Asteroids Are From Mars and Comets Are From Venus. <laughs> because they did the same thing. We have the same plot. We're going to do two movies on it, two different studios. But they were so opposite in their way of approaching the subject. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Uh, yeah, right? One's a Michael Bay movie. Yeah. So with Groundhog Day, you've got all these plot elements that force you to think about the reality of character and the problem with habits. Films find this very difficult to portray, especially in comedy, of course, because changing implies a certain discipline that's painful and it's ugly to show on screen right it's, right it's uh, good to show on screen something like a rocky montage when he's training but if you were to feel miserable about your life because there's something wrong with you and you try to become aware of that and yet it not destroy you there's no good fighting version of that that seems vital and energetic and essentially positive you can't make that into self-help so yeah studios movie makers audiences everybody shies away from that aspect and so the movie has to work around that and instead portray this guy in the beginning you get fairly quickly a sense that he's so sour he's so sarcastic and sardonic as you said mm -hmm. because he has no friends and no love in his life yeah what exactly would he be appreciative about and who could point out to him that he could take a different look at things? This right, part of the Bill Murray persona, yep. this wisecracking persona, is also this idea that I'm smarter than everybody else, is looking down on everybody else and everything around him. Yep. Transform into this small town doing this slightly silly celebration, as he put it, a rodent predicting the weather. 
Yeah, exactly. And you just maximize that contract to that sense of I am stuck in a world where everything is stupider. I'm smarter than everybody. Everything is stupid beneath me. This is hell and I want to get out of it. And then you make him go through the process of accepting the world and, and finding what's good in it and breaking through that wall he has of sarcasm that he's built up around himself. Yep. The movie does very well to only show you that he actually is a very intelligent guy. When he starts to deal with this new situation, at first badly, then destructively, and finally he deals with it better. But then you see that he had pretty good reasons to feel dissatisfied and to feel a certain sense of superiority. He just had no idea about how being better than other people in some sense would require that he help them out rather than exploit them. Well, I also think that he's a smart guy who is not really using his intelligence for anything more than wisecracking. Exactly. And I think Hollywood has a tendency <laughs> to work out its own issues in film. From my experience, Hollywood is a place full of guys who are wisecracking and cynical and tend to view the world as beneath them and who have a extreme sincerity deficit. <laughs> <laughs> it's the dark side of the culture of American cool. Yes. Feeling superior to the world by looking down on it and raising yourself up by putting down other people. Yeah. And there's a lot in this movie that shows you how lonely these people are and where this comes from, an inability to relate to other people in terms of family, friendship, love, things that are recognizable. The story uses to great advantage a time-honored American tradition of pitting city life and country life. The big city and the small town. Yeah. The future yeah. where you look for a career and this place that seems stuck in the past. You pointed out they have a tradition of a rodent that predicts the weather. People find it charming because they have other things in their lives. This guy's only there to do a job that he hates because he'd rather do something better with his career. He wants to be important, successful, famous, not this. Right. There it's all too obvious in this small town that these people don't think he's important. They like him fine, but they're not impressed with him. You see this massive contrast between two ways of life that are, of course, very much represented everywhere in America, not just in plays or movies or novels. Yeah. America has a party that runs the cities and the party that runs the rest of the country. Right, right. The city party and the country party fits very well with today's politics in the sense of up until a few years ago, because you have the one side party that sees itself as smarter and more sophisticated, and the other side, the country party, sees itself as more concerned with family and with values and things like that. Now, now the country party just elected a rather acerbic big city guy, so, <laughs> so I don't know how that fits in with that. I guess it really fits in with the idea that those versions and those ways of looking at things are so interconnected in American culture. And Yes, that's true. The party of the country that talks about values and small-town heartland values then goes off and elects the big city sharp operator as the standard bearer of their party. So it's very strange how we will flip back and forth between those things. Yeah, that's perfectly true. But of course, the self-representation and the preference for ways of life, where do people go to live if they have a choice, that actually does bear out this big difference. And in certain ways, it has only accelerated in recent decades. But it also, rarely for Hollywood, in a qualified way, takes the side of the small town over the big city. Yeah, actually, I'm not sure that. so. Maybe this is sort of the flip side of the party of the country electing the acerbic big city guy. Hollywood is owned and controlled by the big city sharp operators and the cynical guys and, and the R.V. Weinsteins of the world. But it's constantly showing us this idealized view of the heartland and the small towns. 
When Trump was elected, a guy at Cracked.com, you know, this comedic website of all places, actually wrote a really brilliant essay pointing out that in movies like The Hunger Games, the good people are the simple folk working in the mines, and the bad people are the elite, often the big city with their strange manners and corrupt way of life. And Hollywood is constantly reinforcing that city versus country and heartland values versus the cynicism of the big city. Yeah. So I don't think it's actually that unusual for Hollywood and their own ambivalence about a lot of these things. Yeah, so you could say that the big city in the liberal imagination is a home of sophistication, political idealism, achievements, progress, but it is also the place of rough capitalism, ruthlessness, and so forth. That's true. Well, I also think sarcasm and cynicism and corruption, yes. you know, not just in political terms, but just how people treat each other. Cities tend to be a rough place to live in terms of people not treating each other with the same degree of politeness and sincerity that they do, yeah. or at least in the idealized version. People think of it in the general terms of the city versus the country, but in most people's lives, when they think of the idealized view of the heartland, they're probably thinking of the way things were back home when I was a kid growing up, and they're suddenly nostalgic for it. Yeah. Of course. It's sort of universal thing that, you know, when you're a kid, you're eager to go out into the world and do stuff and go to the big city and make something of yourself. And you become impatient and restless with the safety of the small town or suburban environment that you come from. But then once you're an adult and you've been out there for a while, you become nostalgic for the virtues and the positive aspects of the place that you came from. Yeah, that's true. And it's been well represented in American letters for more than a hundred years, all the way back to Theodore Dreiser and who knows who before that. Oh, I mean, it's not just America. I mean, it's a European theme as well because the rise of the novel to some extent coincided with the rise of the city. And by the 19th century, this mass migration of people from the country into the cities along with industrialization. So it's something that we've been coping with or looking at as a culture for uh, hundreds of years. This idea of the simple people living out in the country and then having to uproot themselves and move to the city when discovering its opportunities, but also the vices and the downsides of it. Sure. So yeah, a lot of it is part of the story of industrialization and modernization. It's not clear just which of the qualities are strictly American, but the portrait of the character played by Bill Murray is all American, and it represents something that goes back to Tocqueville, pointing out that Americans are excessively restless, oh, oh yeah. that the country is defined by this restlessness. Yeah, Tocqueville has a great passage where he talks about coming across these wild and untouched area, I think it's in western New York. Yes. And suddenly he's shocked into what seems to be a totally uninhabited, untouched wilderness. He comes across the remains of a cabin and realizes that somebody's already been here and moved on. Yep. And that sums up for him what America is like. We are always constantly moving west and going to a new place. Yeah, so that's partly why the movie is so all-American. The party of the country and the people who prefer that way of life as much as the party of the city and those people are restless on the move. They don't stay in the same place. Think about the great migration to the Sun Belt or the migration over recent decades back into the South. That's just part of the national character. And they don't just move around geographically. They also move around in terms of their job, their status in the world. So the American small town is not a creature of the Middle Ages like in Europe it would be. Yeah, yeah. It's not a remnant of the past. But, you know, with that American restlessness, it then becomes even more interesting to say, what if you took somebody and put him in a situation where he is stuck? 
and he can't move and he can't change anything around him. Yes, exactly. This was uh, the writers, Harold Ramis and Danny Rubin, they hit upon this great idea. And it's a very Tocquevillian insight that Americans are always looking to fix something in themselves by their big moves, whether it's political or geographical changes or jobs or family. They're always looking to fix something in themselves that they cannot force themselves to address directly. Yeah, it's something that I have written about in other contexts before. There's another movie made a, a few years later that I found to be interesting. This big trend of the 80s and 90s was madcap comedians transitioning into more serious dramatic roles. So Tom Hanks did it, Bill Murray did it. The other person who did it was Robin Williams. Yeah. And around 95, I think, he did a movie called What Dreams May Come. It specifically presents a vision of the afterlife. So he's a guy who dies and goes to, well, I guess you'd call it heaven. But his version of heaven is he's living inside the favorite painting that he loved Mm -hmm. that represented his view of the world. So it's the idea that the afterlife for you, whether it's good or bad, is just a projection of what your view of life was while you were alive. Yeah. So if you had a benevolent view of life, if you had a positive and inspirational view of life, you'll end up living in this paradise, whereas he actually has to travel into hell to rescue his wife, who's also died. And it is if you had a, a negative view of the world, if you had a tragic or malevolent view of the world, you're going to end up living in an endless eternal projection of that. And that's what hell is. Yeah. Very much to the same profound issue of wherever you go, there you are. You are always the same, and what you bring to the world in your own mind determines so much of what your experience of the world is. And what I find very interesting about Groundhog Day is that all of his different ways of dealing with being stuck in the same place over and over again mirror a lot of the ways that people use in their own lives to avoid dealing with the basic question of who are you and the ways that they distract themselves from reforming their own minds, forming their own characters and changing their own attitude towards life. They do all these other things to distract themselves from that in the hope of being able to somehow find some comfort through those things. So, you know, these short-term scams that he does or the despair and the way he thinks, oh, I can get away with anything now because you know, there are no long-term consequences for me. It mirrors some of the ways that people distract themselves from the process of dealing with changing who they are. Yeah. The first motion of the film is this guy played by Bill Murray moving towards the utmost conceivable of liberalism in the sense of personal freedom, radical individual autonomy. And this climax is in a moment of despair where he just says, you know, I think maybe I am a god. I mean, not the God. I don't think that I created the world because he's not crazy, of course. (laughs) But he has realized that there's something about him that has reached a certain vision of the divine, which is to be free from consequences, to make all the choices you want and none of them ever have consequences. I view his transition a little differently. At some point, he sort of gives up and accepts the idea that changing his external circumstances is not going to do anything for him. Then in the struggle to not try to rearrange his surroundings to divert him from his problems, he then has really no choice but to turn inward in a positive sense, obviously, and finding positive things to do with himself as a person. Yeah, I love that he goes into piano lessons and every single day he goes to the same lady and as far as she knows, he's starting from scratch each time. You see him get better and better and better and become an expert musician. Yep. 
he's learning to think of eternity in the sense of predictability, repetition, as a good thing because you can build habits. But this only comes after he despairs of what radical autonomy would mean. You have no ties to anybody and there's nobody who can punish you. Turns bank robber, he does all these sorts of humiliations, destructions, crimes, and they have no consequences for him. That's one version of radical autonomy. You can get away with anything. Well, but he actually finds autonomy in a different way, in a more fundamental way, which is, on the one hand, he's so stuck in the short term, he can't do anything. On the other hand, he has an endless long term. I envy the idea of being able to say, you know, I'm just going to I'm an amateur pianist. I like playing classical music, and I don't get anywhere near enough time to practice and to explore all the great music. I would love for the idea of saying, hey, I can do nothing every day for years on end, but just you know, focus on this music and learning this music and having that endless long term to do that without the world moving along without me and I have to catch up. You've got to go make a living and you've got to do all these things. So he has this boundless long term. And people, of course, have gone in and projected how many years does he actually spend in this loop. And from just what they show in the movie, I think it's like three years. From what's sort of implied in the movie, it's more like 30 years. And Harold Ramis has said several times that it could be 10,000 years. He has this boundless amount of time, this incredible long term. But all he can change is anything he can take with him in his mind and his character. And not anything that's external and in a way and not anything that's superficial. Really the key to his development is he has to go from the superficial diversions to the real fundamental issue of who he is. Yeah, so I agree that there is this sort of individual development, a self-improvement that very importantly tends toward the beautiful. He learns three things, mm -hmm. French and poetry specifically. He's not learning French to read the papers or make money out of it. Mm -hmm. He's learning poetry because this is what Fair Lady loves, and he thinks that maybe he could love it too. It spurs his interest as it would in a teenager. He learned it originally in order to try to seduce her. Yeah, well, what is the beginning of love poetry? It doesn't begin with noble intentions. <laughs> but he learns to love it for his own sake. And he learns useless things like throwing cards in a hat. And... <laughs> That's a more metaphysical thing than it might first appear. He makes a giant swan, and then later he sculpts uh, Andy McDowell, the female lady, sculpts her face beautifully. He becomes not just an ice sculptor, but like a real top-level expert ice sculptor. You can just project, you know, how many years of work would it take to do that? Yes, his development of new habits tied up with the search for excellence in the realm of the beautiful, as opposed to, say, the advantageous. Yeah. And I think one interesting thing is, how do we know he's reading French poetry and all that? We actually see him sitting alone in the diner, reading a book, and then he reacts to something he found that's interesting and exciting, and he sort of looks around, and there's nobody there paying attention to him. And it was the first time we see him doing something purely for his own internal enjoyment, and it's not to show off to somebody as a kind of utilitarian thing. I don't even know what book it is. Maybe somebody has gone online and figured out for magnifying the book jacket uh, or the spine of the book. But he's doing something purely for the private spiritual enjoyment of it. Yeah, self-knowledge for him requires getting new habits that make loneliness bearable and the purpose of achieving excellence in the realm of the beautiful. And you could say that this is the serious form of what nowadays we call hipsters. People who prefer the beautiful to the advantageous or the pleasant to the advantageous. Yeah, I, I would say a deeper form of what we call self-improvement today. Self-improvement has a pop culture thing of take some yoga classes and very shallow pseudo-spirituality that tends to come with it. This is like a deeper form of that. It's really doing serious thinking about who you are as a person and about furnishing your mind with beauty and knowledge and skills and ideas.
So it's a more profound form of what's generally called self-improvement in our culture. Yeah, and it has to do with his character. He is given to these pursuits because he has these faculties. He's just never really used them well. And when you don't use them well, they don't just disappear. You start using them badly. He has a certain art of the put-down, but that's just not something to go through life with. Sarcasm, it's the form of intelligence of the powerless. There's a reason sarcasm thrives among teenagers. They have no power in the real world, and so they criticize other people who do. Potential for revolution in that form of intelligence. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But that's just half of what goes on. The other half is he steps back from that moment of radical autonomy where he thinks he might be a god, back to human duties that are also habits, but which are essentially social virtues. He starts doing good things for other people, even knowing that they're never going to repay him. He cannot do those good things looking for a favor in return. There's a kid who falls out of the tree. Yeah, and a bunch of people, and he ends up investing more and more in doing good things for the townspeople to make their way of life work out better. Coming in, he's a guy with no personal connection to anybody else. He sort of views himself as above everybody else, but he's also deeply lonely. I think their early versions, he had a girlfriend who he breaks up with, and they left that out, and I think it's good because he has to come to us as a guy with no personal connections. He's somebody who's built this wall of sarcasm around himself to avoid having personal connection with other people. So by helping these other people, so he sets up this route that he goes through town, and he knows all the tragedies and all the problems that are going to happen, and he helps people. So he catches a kid who falls out of a tree, and the great thing is there's the kid never thanks him. He's like, after all the times he saved the kid, the kid never thanks him, but he does it anyway. In doing that, though, he ends up forming this web of social connections and friendships. Basically, he becomes a beloved figure in this town in the course of a single day by doing all these good things for these people. This something happens in big cities, a part of big city life, because I used to live in Chicago, is one of the rules of living in a city, in an apartment in the big city, is the last person you ever want to get to know is the person who lives right next door to you. Because you're all so close to each other. You're all like separated from each other by just this six-inch wall. If you got to know the person next to you, they'd be too close. They'd be right on top of you. You might make friendships elsewhere, but you studiously ignore the people who are closest to you physically. So he comes in as this sort of big city guy who has no connections and no friendships. He's got professional life, but other than that, he has no real personal life. And then he forms what you tend to form in a small town, which is a web of social connections to all these people around you that you see every day and that you live close to. He's becoming a full human being. So he's developing his intellectual faculties. He's developing his love of beauty. He is falling in love genuinely for the first time in his life with Andy McDowell's character. And he's also developing bonds of friendship and connection with the people around him. Yeah, and that's the even more unexpected part happiness here is about not just being an individual but being a relational human being letting yourself be defined by ties to other people that imply duties reciprocities and having roots in a specific place yeah which is one of the crucial things at the end so he says maybe we should live here yeah <laughs> We know he's been living there for 30 years probably at this point, but he's come to accept it as home. Well, yeah, that's part of the discovery of his relational being, that you can only get to know so many people, you can only be involved in the lives of so many people. It is of necessity a more static and more particular way of living, and it seems to fit in a certain way better with his new habits. As you pointed out, Big City Life, like it or not, will impose certain habits on you. He's a career guy at the beginning, and that's why he doesn't want relations with people, because he'll have to throw them out as soon as he gets promoted. He's a guy who thinks Pittsburgh is stiflingly small. 
Right. Right. You think Pittsburgh is small. Go send you to Punxsutawney, yeah. So the place, from the point of view of writing and directing, it sets up all these opportunities for comedy as well as for insight because you have certain limits with which you work. So also for the moral development of his character, he learns so much about people. They're no longer strangers. And that's another strange thing about the movie. Not just that, it emphasizes so much intellectual development and intellectual virtues, but it also suggests that moral virtues also need this. You need to pay attention, think about people, care about them, so that you know what their problems are, what their strengths and weaknesses are. Right, it's virtue in the Greek sense of excellence at life. Yeah, exactly. The movie shows that all of them require habits. I think the movie looks at it more in terms of happiness. He's becoming a happy person, and one of the ways he does that is by developing that connection to the town and to the people around him and friendships and goodwill, Yeah, which is something that he's never had because he's been closing himself off from the world. So that means that he has to acquire these two different sets of habits. There are things that he does by himself, yeah. and there are other things that of necessity are done with oh. other people, but both of them require diligence and discipline and habit, repetition, and they make life worth living. We are what we repeatedly do, and uh, he gets a chance to repeatedly do a great deal. Yeah, that's very Aristotelian. Virtue is mostly habit. It's a strange affirmation of why it's worthwhile being mortal. To some extent, you pretend you're not mortal because of your habits. Your habits are repetitive, and they give you a certain sense of immortality, that at least something in soul or character is immortal. It doesn't radically vary. It survives independent of outside circumstances, let's put it that way. Exactly, and so he does learn to act sub specie eternitatis, under the aspect of eternity, to ask himself what kind of man he'd like to be not what kind of man circumstances force him to be, or what kind of man his passions, even his ambition, force him to be. But he ends up thinking that radical freedom doesn't mean you're going to be a god, but that you're going to have a choice as to your own character. Exactly. Exactly. That's a good way of putting it. Now, one of the things I wanted to do actually also was, you mentioned Bill Murray had this whole transition from screwball comedy to serious actor. And I think that, especially for people who've grown up in this post-loss in translation era, they think of him more as a serious actor. There's one other recommendation I want to throw in for a movie he made about the same time that is more in the classic screwball comedy mode, but I think it's one of the better things he did in that in that mode, called The Man Who Knew Too Little. Yeah, I know it. It's spoof of uh, the Hitchcock movie, The Man Who Knew Too Much. It's a comedic spy thriller where he's a guy who his brother signs him up for this theater of life that's supposed to be an interactive, immersive theater experience. Yes. It's supposed to be a fictional spy thriller. Well, he ends up actually crossing paths with real spies and being involved in a real spy drama, except he thinks it's all an act. Yep. So he's the oblivious guy going through and succeeding at all these things precisely because he has no idea that the stakes are real. Yes. I think it's the best of his more pure screwball comedies. Yep which takes some of the higher acting skills that he was developing through the 90s and the more rounded and in-depth character. Because he had a manic and more juvenile humor that he did early on. He's developing the more mature things. I don't think there's any great deeper theme to that movie, but it does show you the higher level of the Bill Murray screwball comedy. Yep. And here, I'll throw you one for your theory of Hollywood doubles. The same period, there's the Michael Douglas, Sean Penn movie, The Game, where two brothers are involved in this. Sean Penn buys his brother one of these immersive experiences, but that, of course, is a thriller and is not a happy end. I actually did not see that one, so I will check that out at some point. Well, in this case, it's especially good to see because one of them's a drug 
drama and one's a comedy and you see the different ways the two genres work, how they reflect on character and action. That, as you pointed out in the comedy, the genius of the writer is to concoct all these accidents that are both implausible and that follow very, very tight upon one another. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Whereas in the drama, things have to go off without a hitch, but without this the zaniness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think the zaniness is probably a little more entertaining in some ways. <laughs> yes. I like the fact that in Groundhog Day you get a deeper message, but you get it delivered in a very light and funny and pleasant way so that you don't really notice all that it's doing because it does it in such a light way. Yep. Well, it's always the case that comedians are despised. There's contempt heaped upon their work. However difficult it may be to do and however difficult it may be to get timing right or the skills or what have you, they're, they're always going to be despised to some extent and gone unrewarded. Yeah, yeah. I've been doing some work on this. Look back to the great comedian of the Eddie Murphy in the 90s was Jim Carrey. None of these guys got any recognition for that, but they do have Oscar nominations for drama. Well, not Jim Carrey, but Eddie Murphy does have one. Eddie Murphy has one? Yeah, who would know, right? It's for Dreamgirls, the Motown movie. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, got it, yeah. It's not a very big role or very impressive, and it's a drama. It's not really Eddie Murphy. But that's the way it is for the great movies these guys made. Comedy is always held in contempt, so it's not going to get nominations. It's not the Titanic. Yeah, it is definitely the ignored stepchild of the Oscars and of Hollywood, yeah. Yep. And it's because we laugh at things. To laugh at things is always at some level to think that you're their superior and therefore to hold them in contempt. Or just simply that it's, it's unimportant. Yeah. Well, that's a form of contempt as well. These things don't matter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. As opposed to pretentious dramas that might be forgotten tomorrow or next week, but have impact or are relevant or timely that people to some extent want to look up to. But it is the case that of the two genres, comedy requires more intelligence to script. An impressive idea will not do. It, it doesn't matter if you think that a meteor hitting the earth is a very scary idea. You can't write that into a comedy. You'd have to have a really tight plot. See, I'd like to see a comedy about a meteor hitting the earth. <laughs> I do have to say, in Armageddon, there were a large number of comedic elements that they did, although it was there uh, more as comic relief. Yep, that's true. You, know, you have this ragtag band of miners who are sent off to space because they have the special skills needed to supposedly don't pick the pot apart too much. So they get this ragtag group of unusual and colorful characters. So there's an element of humor in there, too. Yeah. But a screwball comedy about stopping an asteroid from hitting the Earth, I think, would have a lot of potential. <laughs> Precisely because of the seriousness of the situation that would be a high contrast to then making it into a comedy. Yeah, I guess the closest you've got is uh, Dr. Strangelove, the Kubrick comedy about nuclear war. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Well, thank you for joining me. Again, it was a very good essay, very thoughtful. I was pleased to see it. This is what the press, I think, needs more of. There's just not enough treatment of culture in this thoughtful way that respects what writers and directors come up with. Yeah. The movies, I'm sure, is going to be on TV everywhere, widely available tomorrow, so everybody should check it out. Exactly. All the best. I'm looking forward to seeing what you write next. Everybody can check you out in The Federalist. Hi, I appreciate that. Nice talking to you. And you sometimes also guest host the Federalist Radio Hour, right? Fairly infrequently these days because I'm not in D.C., so it's harder for me to get up there. Okay. But I'm one of the emergency backup people <laughs> they go to. It's like, okay. can you come up? Yeah, I can come up. Uh, so, yeah, I'm an occasional guest host there. Well, then we'll catch you in print. <laughs> well, you, you'll, you'll get me occasionally on the radio and, and mostly in print. Okay. All the best. Bye-bye. Uh, nice talking to you. Thanks.